Hello and welcome. I'm Eric. And I'm John. And this is the Wikipedia Chronicles. This is a podcast where we start with a random article, explore it, and then follow the links and see where it takes us. Uh, This week we'll be doing something a little bit different, and we will be pitching our random articles that we have opened up. Um, So, John, what... At each other. We're not pitching to you. There's no (laughs) idea of participation. There's actually no way for you to possibly (laughs) participate in this uh, so, yeah, it will just be me and John. Which may change. I mean, if you want to participate, let yeah. us know. Maybe we'll have a live show someday. That could Who work. Knows? That's a thing podcasts do. They do do that. Of course, they have to have audiences. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a helpful thing. Right. So, that that would be helpful first. But, uh, you know, just let us know if you are listening. Then we can <laughs> switch it to sort of an audience participatory mm-hmm. thing. Not quite sure how we would do that, but we'll cross <laughs> that bridge when we come to it. Like a choose your own adventure podcast. Exactly. Exactly. That would be an interesting one if we could pull that off. Uh, I mean, we already do sort of choose our own adventure. That's true. I mean, we're choosing our own adventure. That's true. Now we have two options to choose our adventure from the start. Now, what if we did an episode where we explore every single link? Okay. And then we give the listeners like, okay, which link would you like us to, you know, go to next? And then they choose that link and then they follow that path that we talk about for that one. I could see that being feasible. I actually really, yeah, this is a good brainstorm we're having on the air. We'll have to find our, somebody our <laughs> who has the technological <laughs> prowess to make that happen because I cannot conceive of any way for I, that. I don't know either because I mean, we're not recording live. We, right. I mean, I mean, maybe Ooh. we are, but it's possible through YouTube, perhaps. Oh, they could. They do have the clickable, clickable links, links on the, on the video. videos. Exactly right. So we just create a ton of videos right and then they can click on whichever one and obviously it wouldn't be a video podcast it would just be audio and maybe pictures on in place of the video right right then they could click on their links okay and we could like we could put it up in a way where they would only have to listen to the pertinent question like right. We would present the links to them, and we would just like mm-hmm. cut that bit of the podcast out, slap it on some YouTube video right. track, and then they wouldn't have to listen to the entire podcast on YouTube because mm-hmm. that's cruel and unusual punishment <laughs> to their data plans. Whereas, yeah. you know, they could just listen to that and then vote. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, we could we could even like assemble all the different paths, and then they kind of cho- right like send in their own like thing. Saying which like, ones they would like maybe to maybe like a like a March Madness type thing like a yeah, like a bracket almost mm-hmm. of like potential options and yeah. links and they could elect to torture us or elect to give us things <laughs> that they actually want to learn about it's up to them yeah I think that'd be cool I, I actually really like yeah. that idea well it's something to keep in mind for the future yeah okay well now that we spent five minutes of this episode <laughs> uh, talking about potential future episode <laughs> ideas. Um, All right. Well, uh, yeah. What did what did random article did you bring up? I brought up the Dwingaloo Radio Observatory. Hmm. 
a radio observatory. Yeah, I, I don't really know, but I mean, I'm not going to really explain it until we decide to, uh, you know, if we decide to choose it. Mm, right. Um, I, I want to see what the other options we have first. I don't want to get us biased. Well, um, <laughs> the random article that I brought up is Tornado. Okay. T O U R N A D O. Oh, Tor. Nato, yeah, not italicized, so it is a name, oh boy. proper name. Oh no, for what? Of a title of a thing. Okay, all right. So <laughs> now we have to go into the for what's a little bit. We have to describe something. All right, uh, what's? I hesitate to ask. Tornado. Tornado is the third video album by American rock band The All American Reject. Oh my God, no! <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I think. Uh, hmm. Well, that, that's predicament. Okay, here's what the Twingaloo Radio Observatory is. It's a radio telescope. Basically, it discovers galaxies and stuff. And uh, it doesn't operate anymore. It's just mm. kind of ornamental now. So those are our options. Either we can go into a thing about a crappy band, or we can go into a thing about a crappy, dilapidated, disused radio telescope that is probably outdated and uh, learn, I think, hmm. have we done stuff about space? I feel like we've um, done a little bit about space, but maybe not that much. Maybe a little bit, but yeah, not that much. I mean, we did just do an episode where we talked a lot about a band. Yes. So we should probably not do another episode in a row where we yes. talk about a band. Right. So let's go with the whatever Dwingaloo. <laughs> Dwingaloo. It's spelled uh, D-W-I-N. G E L O O Radio Observatory. Correct. Dwingaloo Radio right. Observatory. The reason why it has kind of a weird name like that is because it's located in the Netherlands. Um, but I honestly wouldn't have guessed that by looking at it. I had to read the article <laughs> to discern that. I mean, Dwingaloo sounds almost kind of. I'm uh, not really sure. Maybe more like. Like. Austrian, or mm. maybe something along the lines of more of an Eastern European dialect yeah. of some sort. Not really uh, particularly Dutch. But it is. Um, basically what they did, though, after they closed this radio telescope down, is they restored it and remounted it in 2012. <laughs> uh, it's now a Dutch industrial heritage monument. Oh. Yeah. So it's now, not operational, but still there. A radio telescope, I'm assuming, is basically like instead of observing something through a lens, you're listening to sounds from deep space. Right? I honestly don't it, know. It's I mean, a dish that has a thing on it. So my guess would be something to do with sound rather than vision. Well, it says here that, uh, or maybe it makes a. It looks like it makes a map of stuff yeah. based on the. I think sound. based on like kind of an almost sonar thing, like it sends sound waves up and mm. it gets them back, and it's able to use that information to kind of picture what's going on. It says that there are two galaxies named after this telescope. Hmm. Dwingaloo 1 and Dwingaloo 2. And I it doesn't say this in the article. 
but I would guess that that means that this art, that this radio telescope, at some point in its history, was discovering new stuff hmm. in the depths of space. Cool. Dwingaloo Two Electric Boogaloo. I like Dwingaloo Two as a link. I mean, it is yeah. a link. And so is Dwingaloo 1. Mm-hmm. But Dwingaloo 2 just has that ring. It has that yeah. electric boogaloo <laughs> ring to it that all sequels need to have. Yeah, well, I'm interested in seeing what this thing has discovered. So let's go ahead and do it up. All right. Dwingaloo, Dwingaloo 2. Dwingaloo You really can't say that without saying electric boogaloo <laughs> after it. Zwingaloo 2 it is too so perfect. Well. Yeah. Ooh, it's a, an irregular galaxy. Oh, I like my galaxies irregular. I'll tell you what. They're a lot cheaper that way. That's true. You can buy them by the dozen. It's about 10 million light years away from Earth. And it's, uh, sure enough, discovery is a result of the Dwingaloo Obscured Galaxy Survey of the Zone of Avoidance. <laughs> Which, oh, man. I don't know Zone what that's avoidance. supposed to mean, but yeah, yeah. Dwingaloo uh, Radio Observatory apparently conducted that uh, Obscured Galaxy Survey and uh, found this along with hmm. Dwingaloo 1. Yeah, it says detected at radio wavelengths. So my guess is that they send out radio waves into space and then it somehow maps out certain things. But it seems like if you can just look at stuff, why go through all the trouble of radio technology for that? Well, I think it might be because of the nature of the zone of avoidance. If I had to guess, Mm. I mean... There's it probably some situations avoid, avoidy, avoidy, like it's avoidy <laughs> of other telescopes somehow. Yeah, it could be. I think it's probably one of those situations where, because of space reasons, you cannot see light from it. So mm-hmm. a conventional means, I'm talking like your general telescope, can't pick it up, no matter how long of how long the exposure is going on because the light's being pulled elsewhere. It's never going to come your direction, Mm. so forget about it. The only way you're going to get that is if you have something that's going to, like, bounce back. Yeah, it says it's about five times less than the size of Dwingaloo 1. So Dwingaloo 2 is a far, far worse thing than the original. (laughs) It's not a very good sequel. It doesn't hold up half a star. Or, you know, a few stars. Yeah, it's, a galaxy. It's, it's probably, probably rotten, got a lot of stars. Rotten on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. Below 50%, probably. It says that the visible radius of Dwingaloo 2 is approximately 2 feet. <laughs> I don't know that what that's can't... supposed to mean. Like, how close are we huh. supposed to be zoomed in here to be able to see this radius? 2 feet? Compared that, to, that, like, There's what? no way that's a... You know, a normal that, telescope. That, yeah, I, that would take up all of the sky. Visible radius. I mean, to be able to see two feet of a galaxy, I feel like that's not much of anything. Because I mean, you, if you see two feet of, like, say, the Milky Way, yeah, you're not gonna get very much of a picture no, of that. You're not. <laughs> it's just gonna be like a bunch of dust. You're gonna get dust. like a patch of ground on Earth. Right. Which is one of nine planets surrounding one sun <laughs> out of billions of suns. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, 
doesn't really make a whole lot of sense when you put it that way. I don't know. I don't know. Okay, There's so wait. Something up with this zone of avoidance, I think. I Maybe, yeah. Because it says that the visible radius is two feet, but it's at the distance of three MPC, hmm. which uh, corresponds to, from where we are seeing it at, about a 2kpc hmm. visible radius. Now, I don't know anything about those units of measurement. <laughs> and yeah. honestly, this article doesn't shed a Ooh, lot okay. of light on that. Well, there are links over on the side in the info box. Okay. okay. Um, I'm just going to hover over the link for MPC. Oh, my gosh. It's, it's parsecs. parsecs. Eric, it's parsecs. They, they can do the Kessel Run. <laughs> In, in some Twingaloo sort of, 2 can yeah. do the Kessel Run in under two parsecs. That's true. It says <laughs> it right there. I don't know what KPC is still, though. Maybe that's the metric version or something. Or maybe it's thousands of parsecs, like yeah, kilo, kilometer. Maybe MPC is megaparsecs and KPC is... All right. Well, uh, I don't know. To understand what's going on here, I'm going to bounce over to parsec just yeah. for a... Uh, Sec. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so to clarify for both ourselves and our listeners, a parsec is a unit of length used to measure the astronomically large distances to objects outside of the solar system. One parsec is the distance at which one astronomical unit subtends an angle of one arc second. But since we don't care about any of the latter end of that sentence, as we are not astronomers, <laughs> a parsec is equal to about 3.26 light years. So it's about 19 trillion miles in length. Okay. Now, that means that uh, relative to what we can see here, the nearest star to the sun is called Proxima Centauri. And it's about 1.3 parsecs from the sun. Hmm. And that means it's going to be around, give or take, 25 trillion miles away from us. Okay. All right. Well, here I found the part that clarifies MPC and KPC. Okay. So um, MPC stands for megaparsec. Gotcha. And it is a distance of one million parsecs. Oh, my God. So this is really far out. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, and then KPC, kiloparsec, that is 1,000 parsecs. Okay. But that kind of confuses me as to how a distance of three megaparsecs is equal to two kiloparsecs. <laughs> well... The distance, it says in the article for Dwingaloo 2 that oh. at the distance of three megaparsecs away, there is a radius uh, of about okay. two kilo, kiloparsecs. Okay, so if you're looking at it from three megaparsecs away, the no, no, span of two feet is equal to two kiloparsecs. Right. Okay. Because you have that scale, basically. Okay. That kind of like dwindles it down, but ultimately the span of this galaxy, Dwingaloo Two, is around. Well, let's see. Kiloparsecs means a thousand parsecs, and then nineteen trillion miles. So you're dealing so with about 
19 38 quadrillion. quadrillion. Yeah. 38 quadrillion miles across this galaxy is. Not too shabby. No, decent, I think. Yeah, I can't fathom what 38 quadrillion <laughs> miles looks like, so... I, I can hardly furthest... wrap my round ar- mind around like a thousand miles. Yeah, you know, that's like the furthest I've been. But... I think, like on a plane, <laughs> and then I was I was in Florida, and yeah. I mean, it didn't seem like that many miles. But I mean, considering that we're talking about where I traveled at my peak times, well, let's see, It'd be times it's to the to like the twentieth power. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at that point, that. Yeah, that's pretty nuts. Yeah, I mean, like, for for us, that's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. To the universe, probably <laughs> not very much. Atlas Shrug. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, this is a... Uh, so it's definitely not a small place, but as far as the universe is concerned, yeah, it's smaller than Dwingaloo 1, and it's so far out there from us that we'll yeah. probably never really get to know it intimately as we will other galaxies mm-hmm. looking at you Alpha Centauri <laughs> okay so do we want to check out this zone of avoidance I think see we do what is going on here like why do we need to have an entire survey dedicated to just this one area of space like what's the deal with zone of, zone of avoidance aha Ooh. sure enough the zone of avoidance okay. is the area of the night sky that is obscured by our own freaking galaxy, <laughs> the Milky Way. Basically, Typical all Milky of the Way. crap that we have in our galaxy completely just prevents us from seeing what's out there. It was originally called the Zone of Few Nebulae in ni- 1878. Wow. So That's we were already, we already on top of this. We were already getting into nebulae in that time. It's very interesting. I always forget that at that time, things were actually happening. Mm-hmm. You know, like technological advancements and things like medicine and astronomy were pretty, you know, prevalent. And yeah. And it's not, it's not, it's not unusual. I'm always surprised by that too, because like, remember how long hydraulics, how long ago <laughs> oh, yeah. hydraulics were developed? I mean, yeah. they're not conventional hydraulics, but even right. like the piston and stuff, you're just kind of mm. like, oh, it's been around for thousands of years. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, like, uh, you know, and um, like all sorts of stuff. You s- just look at it, and it goes back, you know, thousands and thousands of years. And like they were still even observing stuff in space back in ancient Rome and right. that kind of stuff. I mean, they didn't have advanced telescopes, but they at least started seeing all that stuff. And they started like basing what they saw, what the patterns that they saw develop mm-hmm. were off of like how we would move relatively on the Earth to right. what was moving around up there. And through that, they're able to figure out a lot of stuff really early on. And that mm. it really always does boggle the mind. So something like this, that we had the foresight to see not only the Milky Way at that point in time in 1878, but also be like, you know, the Milky Way is probably blocking our view of a lot of crap. <laughs> That's, uh, I have to pat the human race in general on the back for that. That's, yeah. you know, smart. Because mm-hmm. we were already thinking, like, yeah, this poses a problem. There's basically giant amounts of light pollution in yeah. space that we can't <laughs> see around. And we're trying to... This is before there was even light pollution on Earth, for God's sake. Yeah. 
Like, how did they? Like, that's just smart. That's just brilliant. I can't. I can't get enough of it. Yeah, it was Richard Proctor who originally termed it Zone of Funebulae. Hats off to Richard Proctor then. Smart man. Jeez. Looks like all of the stuff in the Milky Way galaxy ends up obstructing 20% of the extragalactic sky <laughs> at visible wavelengths. Which to the layperson means <laughs> that your own galaxy blocks a fifth of the entire sky <laughs> to your eyes. Doesn't really seem fair. Hmm. It's like it's put up there as like a, a shield. We're not supposed to see past it. <laughs> so uh, is that like, um, like a year-round kind of blockage then? Because you'd figure the Earth rotates and it moves around the sun. At some point, you'd have to see some of that blocked sky. You would think. But at the same time, you have to think, okay, the Earth and the Sun and all of our local group mm -hmm. are stuck within the Milky Way galaxy, right? Mm -hmm. So regardless of how much we tilt up, down, sideways, we're probably still surrounded by the Milky Way galaxy, True. left, right, up, down. and Probably and, so small in yeah. the you know, scope of things that we're just like, even though we're moving around a lot, we're still only covering a very small area of the whole precise thing. Like it just, we can't we can't get a good vantage point. We're like that little kid mm -hmm. that's like, hey, hey, let me see. <laughs> and they're trying. We're trying to jump up over the shoulders of the yeah. other galaxies around us because they're all the taller, larger <laughs> stars and galaxies. And we want to see the rest of the world. We want to see what's out there. We want to see who's on stage, but we can't. <laughs> so we're finding ways around that. We're building. What's essentially an intergalactic step stool. Hmm. Something to boost our height so that we can see above and beyond what is otherwise blocked. Yeah, it looks like there were a couple galaxies discovered in this zone by Paolo Maffei by their infrared emission in see? 1868. See, that's smart. Mm -hmm. Using other means to be able to see. Oh, wow. It says, even so, like, in regards to detecting through infrared emission, mm -hmm. approximately 10% of the sky remains difficult to survey. Ah. Uh, so, in other words, we got, ten, we got half of that 20% back. Yeah. But, even with, even with that. So, I guess that's 1968... And then fast forward to the 90s when Dwingaloo starts working its radio magic and maybe they have started to eat up that the rest of that 10%. It looks like they definitely chipped into it a little bit because the radio wavelengths seem to find a few more things. Although still not many, admittedly. Like, mm -hmm. if Dwingaloo 1 and Dwingaloo 2 are all the more we gleaned from it, I feel like we went from maybe 10% of the sky being obstructed to maybe 9.9% .9 of the sky being <laughs> yeah, obstructed. Yeah, they don't seem too big. Yeah, they're not huge, and there's only two of them. There's got to be more behind that remaining 10%. Although it does say um, that aside from Dwingaloo 1 and 2... Uh, the use of radio waves has detected many galaxies that could not be detected with infrared. 
So Dwingaloo 1 and Dwingaloo 2 are just the uh, examples, but yeah. how many more have there been? I wonder if there's a list of that. That would be nice. Well, let's see. Uh, it says in the paragraph, there's a couple of links. There's a, a link to a mission line of neutral, atomic, and then hydrogen is another link. Uh, known to known in astronomical parlance as HI, have detected many galaxies. Blah blah blah, that couldn't be detected by infrared. So maybe if we look at the hydrogen line article, which is the HI, mm. sorry HL article that I mentioned before, or if we look at the emission line mm. article, we might see a list. I don't know. Alternatively. We could uh, look at thi- like links for Iris or Two Mass <laughs> or uh, Extinction, Visible Wavelengths, or that Richard Prather guy who was so darn smart. Mm. Yeah, I don't know what this whole thing means in that radio wavelengths paragraph where it says using the 21 centimeter spin flip emission line of neutral atomic hydrogen so i'm kind of interested in what the emission line is right so if we look at so we want to look at the emission line or the hydrogen line let's go with emission line okay now fair warning that one's going to be uh i'm guessing a little less specific to astronomy uh, than the hydrogen line because the hydrogen line mm-hmm. is the like explicit refractivity here. Let's see what it says. You can always go back, True. sort of. <laughs> it's a little bit against the rules, but I mean, who's keeping track, right? <laughs> Matter of fact, you know what? There's probably a link to the hydrogen line someplace within the context of this article. True. Now that I'm looking at it, so on to these. The uh, emission line, which redirects you to an article about spectral line. Hmm. So basically, the visual spectrum of light. Yes. A dark or bright line in an otherwise uniform and continuous spectrum is what a spectral line is. It's also referred to commonly as a spectra. It's resulting from an emission or absorption of light in a narrow frequency range compared to nearby frequencies. So, for example, if you're looking at just like a black rectangle and you see all of a sudden a red line that kind of goes straight through it, you know that there's something around that that's taking Mm -hmm. everything but the red. Or producing red, for that matter. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, it says spectral lines are the result of interaction between a quantum system, usually atoms, but sometimes molecules or atomic nuclei, Hmm. and a single photon. When a photon has has about the right amount of energy to allow a change in the energy state of the system, the photon is absorbed then it will be spontaneously re-emitted either in the same frequency as the original or in a cascade where the sum of the energies of the photons emitted will be equal to the energy of the one absorbed. And that frequency, Hmm. of course, is exactly what causes us to see a certain color. Like if it's going to be a certain, if it's at a certain speed, it's going to come out of there red, purple, blue, yellow, Mm -hmm. whatever. 
which is kind of cool. Yeah. Okay, so it says the spectral line can be observed as either an emission line or absorption line. Ah, so there's so, our term, emission line. Right. It's back. So emission is what the thing gives off. Absorption is what it draws in. Right, exactly. Yeah. And it says here that whichever type of line is observed depends on the type of material as well mm. as its temperature relative to another emission source. So an absorption line is produced when photons from a hot, broad spectrum source pass through a cold material. Mm. The intensity of light over a narrow frequency range is reduced to absorption by the material and re-emission in random directions. By contrast, a bright emission line is produced when photons from a hot material are directed, are detected in the presence of a broad spectrum from a cold source. Hmm. Kind of reminds me of like in chemistry class when mm-hmm. you have the bottles of the different like elements, like you yeah. have something with zinc in it or mm. all different sorts of stuff, sprayed in a fire, like a flame, and right. it blows like a green or a blue or red or something. Exactly. It's pretty it's pretty much along those lines. There was also I can't remember if it was in a chemistry class or if it was in physics class where we had goggles mm. where you could put them on and you could literally see these lines in mm. the spectrum based upon the kind of energy that was being released. Cool. Like they pretty much were rectangular sunglasses. Mm-hmm. They had very kind of almost just just bars that you could see through. Mm-hmm. And uh, at a certain point, whenever something was done, I forget what it was, but whenever something was done, <laughs> there would be just a line that would appear in front of you, and you'd be like, "Oh, hey, there's that." Huh. You would see, you would legitimately be able to see the emission line through these goggles. Hmm. So that's kind of neat. Well, let's see if there's any way in here that we can find our way back to the specific uh, tendency for these to be used for... uh, Well, uh, there is a link to hydrogen lines in the see also section. That may be what we want to do. So, yeah, let's go over to hydrogen line. Okay. All right, so the hydrogen line is the also known as the 21 centimeter line or the HL line is talking about an electromagnetic radiation spectral line like we just talked about mm-hmm. created by a change in the energy state of neutral hydrogen atoms okay uh, electromagnetic radiation is at the precise frequency of 1420 point four zero five. Seven five one seven seven megahertz. Although which, citation is needed for yes. this calculation, just so you know, beware. <laughs> this may not be correct. <laughs> Even though it's painstakingly <laughs> precise, it may be wrong. Uh, which is equivalent to the vacuum wavelength of who cares? The previous entry I just told you was a really long <laughs> number. It had a citation that was needed. This just translates that into centimeters. So, I mean, if the other one's wrong, this one's wrong, too. <laughs> you don't need to know. If you want to know a translation between hertz and centimeters, I don't know why that would be useful. <laughs> but, I mean, maybe sciencey people out there would. Then you can do that. But mm-hmm. I'm not going to say that number, too. <laughs> um, so let's see if this thing gives us some insight as to how it can be used in... 
Uh, astronomy. Oh, there it is. Uses. A use for the hydrogen line uh, is when the spectral line appears within the radio spectrum in the microwave mm. window, to be exact. One we're all fondly familiar with, maybe even in love with, depending <laughs> on how much we like. We like hot pockets. Uh, electromagnetic energy in this range can easily pass through the Earth's atmosphere and be observed from the Earth with little interference. Interesting. And I can see that being invaluable when you're trying to receive any sort of like sign that something's being emitted from something that's beyond your visible eye. Mm. That right there, that sentence sheds a lot of, <laughs> ironically, light on <laughs> uh, exactly why our uh, exploration of the unseeable sky or the zone of avoidance hmm. is done this way. Now, I'm, I'm interested in the link here that says radio spectrum because I didn't know there was a... Well, I guess different frequencies, but... Yeah, um, yeah. That just sounds interesting. But it's not just a matter of tuning the radio to get your favorite station right. on. Right. Nor is it a matter of, like, tinnitus. It's not a matter of having that, like... <laughs> like that, beeps, that beep test that you used to get at the school uh, nurse. Yeah. Remember that thing? Oh, yeah. That thing was the most wear fun. those giant yeah. headphones. Yeah, those giant old-school gray headphones. Yep. Boop. <laughs> and it was, like, left. And it was right. <laughs> and... These are these aren't audio these aren't stereo microphones, so I mean it doesn't really yeah. can't you can't really like I don't think it will. I don't think it will do that. Yeah, maybe not. Okay. Um But in any case, yeah, yeah, like that, basically. But I guess there's ones that are so far beyond the sound spectrum that they just mm. end up being useful for color purposes. It kind of makes you wonder, like, what color have all the radio stations we've been listening to for all our lives really been? Right. Where do they fall? They have to be on the spectrum someplace, right? They are radio. Hmm. What are microwaves? What color are microwaves? <laughs> Whoa. So, going back to the topic of radio astronomy here, assuming that hydrogen atoms are uniformly distributed throughout the galaxy is a pretty big assumption considering how there's not a lot of stuff in the galaxy as we actually have come to find out. Right. Each line of sight through the galaxy will reveal a hydrogen line. The only difference between each of these lines is the Doppler shift that each of these lines has. Hence, one can calculate the relative speed of each arm of our galaxy. Hmm. That's kind of cool. Yeah. The rotation curve of our galaxy has also been calculated using the 21-centimeter hydrogen line. It is then possible to use the plot of the rotation curve and the velocity to determine the distance to a certain point within the galaxy. So we can use this to figure out how long it's going to take us to get from point A to point mm -hmm. B here. But they've also been used to indirectly calculate the mass of galaxies and also to put limits on any changes over time of the universal gravitational constant. Hmm. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, there's something about that that's actually kind of kind of really neat. Yeah, it's crazy that 
somebody even thought to use radio waves to see things in space. I wonder who did that. That's really pretty brilliant. Oh, wait. Here we go. There's actually an article. There's actually a little bit of a portion of this article devoted to exactly that, the uh, discovery heading. Mm-hmm. So it was the 1930s that somebody noticed that a radio hiss that varied on a daily cycle and appeared to be extraterrestrial in origin. That's kind of creepy. Yep. <laughs> it says that initial suggestions was that this was due to the sun existing in our galaxy, but it seemed as though radio waves were coming from the center of the Milky Way galaxy. Ooh. Center of the galaxy has a link. Ooh. That might be kind of cool. It's a really bright thing, the center of the galaxy. I'm sure there could be some really cool pictures. Uh, let's see. the dis- Those discoveries, though, were um, seen by Professor J.H. Oort. Oort? Oort? There's two O's. So, Oort. Oort. Oort? No, wait, hold on. Good. Oort. Oort. Good. Hood. Should no. Ert. Ert. Yeah. Hello, Professor Ert. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sure. Like an Mr. Yeah, you just have to address him like that all the time. Yeah. Professor Ert, please. <laughs> but yeah, he was the one that published the findings and saw that stuff. Um. And then Dr. Hendrik van der Holst uh, continued this research. Now, even though he continued that research and uh, predicted the megahertz frequency that I uh, stated earlier, albeit he predicted it much more vaguely, <laughs> I mean, he he totally left like four or five more <laughs> decimal place numbers out yeah, of he's there. He's like, I'm rounding it off. I don't yeah, care. Who cares? Who cares? It's gonna Nobody's going to care <laughs> 200 years from now. They cared. Uh, <laughs> They cared 50 years from now. Like, uh, anyway. <laughs> oh, man, they rounded down even more. Yeah, they did. They got down to 1420.4 megahertz, which is where the 21-centimeter line that all this good stuff comes from lives. That's the agreed-upon number. <laughs> you don't need that huge, long-winded decimal number that I was giving out earlier. Uh, no, it doesn't seem very precise. No, it doesn't. Like, if I was tuning to it on a radio station, for example, I, w- I would really want that to be precise. I wouldn't want to miss it. But <laughs> now, I wonder why the citation is not needed for these two numbers, but for the longer, more specific number, the citation is needed. Maybe because they uh, cite the publications made by these two guys, mm. uh, namely the aforementioned Dr. Hendrik van der Holst by Eric. And then also, uh, there's another document published in 1951 by Ewan and Purcell at Harvard University. Maybe it's because they're uh, citing those documents. And Mm. in those documents themselves, they just name drop, like, rounded off numbers to the frequencies. They don't, like, say the whole thing. So... Maybe it's that. Maybe the people are taking issue with that specific and uh, rather obtuse amount of numbers <laughs> uh, in in the original entry earlier on in the article. 
<laughs> not really sure, but that would be my guess. Ooh. So I just noticed this. Um, I, I didn't really read the entire paragraph before here, but I just noticed the word forbidden with a link. What? And it says... Where is this? It's a link to forbidden line right above discovery. And it says this transition is highly forbidden with an extremely small rate of yada yada. There's a forbidden line. I kind of want to go there. (laughs) I want to see what the forbidden line is. Why is it forbidden? Yeah. Well, let's see. Uh, Forbidden mechanism is what it redirects you to. Okay, so I found a little chart. I'm not. I haven't read anything else about this yet, but there's a little chart, and the <laughs> heading is forbiddenness. And the first one this. is this super, is super allowed. The next one is allowed, and then there's first forbidden, second forbidden, and third forbidden. <laughs> and then there's a column entirely devoted to delta pi, under which it says in order, respectively, to what Eric just said. No, no, yes. No, yes. (laughs) I don't know what any of this means, but I find it intensely amusing. Uh, Super loud. Super loud. This one is very loud. It is allowed way more than anything else. I don't understand. I need to read. I need to read. There's got to be a way to put some sense around this. Okay, so forbidden mechanisms or forbidden lines are terms used in physics. There are spectral lines emitted by atomic nuclei, atoms, or molecules undergoing nominally quote-unquote forbidden energy transitions, not normally quote-unquote allowed by the section rules of quantum mechanics. So in formal physics, that means the process can't proceed via the most efficient route. So Hmm. normally these are forbidden, but there's a small probability of their spontaneous occurrence should an atomic nucleus, an atom, or a molecule be raised to an excited state. Hmm. So... Okay... So usually, like, this is like, no, this never happens, but sometimes, sometimes it happens. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's basically that. And it seems, but the thing that seems weird to me is that the bottom of the, the second paragraph in the article here states that such excited states, which are normally considered to be forbidden, mind you, it says right here, can last for, these states can last for years or even many billions of years, which are too long to have been measured. <laughs> so what the heck makes that oh, forbidden? Man. I mean, maybe it's forbidden here, but maybe we should, you know, recategorize our definitions a little bit to account <laughs> for the fact that it's really just here that these things, these occurrences, <laughs> are in fact forbidden. It seems to me <laughs> that they've been going on elsewhere for forever. Man. I think this in terms of like teenagers, you know, like parents say, hey, no going out past 10. Yeah. And the teenager stays out for the rest of their life, never comes back. <laughs> stays out for billions yeah. of years. Billions <laughs> hey, wait a minute. Years. I thought he told you not to do that. 
doesn't matter. I figured <laughs> if I lived for, if I was out for billions of years, nobody was going to be alive when I came back to be able to really, you know, do anything about it. So I just took that route, you know. <laughs> okay, well, it does say here, most forbidden transitions are only relatively unlikely. So that means that, you know, compared to states that we're used to, that's what they're talking about with regards to relativity. Hmm. They're, they're, they're saying that, you know, you might be able to get away with this, but it's not... It's only unlikely under the states that we're used to seeing. There are multiple others. There are many other cases where this sort of thing can happen. It can come up. It's just that generally you won't see it. Right. Ooh. There's a link to solid-state lasers. What? I like the sound of that. I'm going there. <laughs> Let's do this. Enough with forbidden lines. Enough with lines in general. We've gotten For real. too many lines. We're talking about lasers. Yeah. yeah. Well, solid-state laser is a laser that is solid rather than a liquid I didn't know lasers or, were liquids. Huh. Or gas. <laughs> okay, Apparently there's gas sense. lasers, too. I thought lasers were light anyway, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know maybe, what's going on. Maybe there's other uh, kinds of lasers Ooh. we're not realizing. Well, it does say a list of laser types. Okay. So maybe we bounce over to the laser types. Well, hold on, hold on. Let's look, let's look at what's going on here. Maybe we can kind okay. of discern what's happening. So, a solid-state laser is a laser that uses a gain medium that is a solid rather than a liquid, or a yeah, such as in dye lasers, or a gas such as in gas lasers. Uh, what we need to do is figure out what exactly a gain medium is. What does the gain medium do within the context of the laser? Because the gain medium seems to be what exactly uh, allows the laser to work. Right. So let me just see what that means really quick. Okay. The source of optical gain within the laser. Great. What's gain? <laughs> uh, gain is the measure of the ability to of a two-port circuit to increase the power or amplitude of a signal from the input to the output port. Okay. By adding uh, energy converted from some power supply to the signal. So basically... It's pumping up the laser to yeah. get a stronger laser going. Right. You feed energy into the gain medium, whether it be solid state, whether mm -hmm. it be gaseous or liquid. And at that point, it will refract the desired characteristic that you get from a laser right. which is a really focused beam of light mm -hmm. that's how it will export the energy that's having passed through it okay all right so they use rare earth elements commonly glass or crystalline ones namely uh it says here that they use neodymium which is a element i've barely ever said <laughs> uh chromium uh Oh, and they use one of my favorites, the one that starts with a Y. Terbium. <laughs> Which I can't say the Y of, sorry. I mean, it starts with a Y. I'll take my word for it. But the proper pronunciation is terbium. <laughs> Why terbium? Because terbium. <laughs> Eric Terbium. <laughs> I am Eric Terbium. Come in here, gal. Come in here right now. <laughs> 
Ooh, laser pumping. What exactly is that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let me put that into context. Okay, yeah. Many yeah. of the common dopants are rare earth elements because the excited states of such ions are not strongly coupled with the thermal vibrations of their crystal lattices, phonons, and their operational thresholds can be reached at relatively low intensities of laser pumping. So laser pumping must be adding gain to a laser to get it to be stronger? Probably. I would suppose so because... You don't have to uh, exceed operational thresholds. Mm-hmm. You're uh, you're basically you're amping it up to the operational threshold without right. it going over that. Because at that point, I don't know what would happen. I'm guessing your laser would probably explode. <laughs> Not really sure, but that seems to be the kind of like there's a lot of a lot of very proper, very uh, mm-hmm. distinct and uh, educated terms in this article. But I'm pretty sure what they're saying is that you don't have to use a lot of power to get your laser grip form at the maximum. It will Mm. before it will simply blow up. (laughs) Okay, so the first material used for lasers was synthetic ruby crystals. Huh. And those ruby lasers are still used for a few applications, but they're super inefficient, so most people (laughs) don't like them. Uh, There is a link here to ruby lasers, I might add. Uh, at room temperature, ruby lasers emit only short pulses of light, but at cryogenic temperatures, ooh, call back to a previous episode, <laughs> they can be made to emit a continuous train of pulses. So it looks like some of the other ones that they use here are titanium-doped sapphire. Man, they really like their rare, <laughs> their rare gemstones, don't they? And alexandrite. Hmm. But there is a little section here on pumping, laser pumping. Solid-state lasing media are typically optically pumped using either flash lamp or arc lamp, or by laser diodes. So. Diode-pumped solid-state lasers tend to be more efficient and have become much more common as the cost of high-power semiconductor lasers has decreased. Ooh. Solid-state lasers are being developed as optional weapons and are reaching near-operational status. Oh, so those are the ones that they've been using, like, in the Navy to shoot down missiles before they can hit their targets. I believe so. Cool. Nice. Pretty soon we'll be putting them on spaceships and you can blow a quarter out of somebody's hand from miles away. Soon the dream of Reagan will come true. <laughs> the Star Wars project will be complete. <laughs> we'll have a very own we'll have our very own Death Star and uh, the world will be ours. <laughs> you ever wonder how the that how the Death Star got from one planet to another because I mean that thing hmm. that thing totally didn't have warp drive that thing was yeah. like way too yeah, big to move fast definitely never warped anywhere so how did it get from like Alderaan to anywhere hmm. else like you would think that everybody yeah. would be dead by the time that it got from Alderaan <laughs> to Endor well I mean you never really see it moving it 
Every, every time you see it, is, it is stopped <laughs> at whatever place it is. Right. So It's completely dead, stopped. Right, but not, how does it move? Maybe they spin it and... Okay. And then it just... It's in space. So, I mean, there is yeah. relatively little, like, friction. Right. So, once they get it planet. moving, then it starts... And yeah. it never stops moving. Right. Unless they put the brakes on and... Right. But it, that's just the one thing that Star Wars never explains to me. Everything mm. else has thrusters, has, like, rockets mounted to the back of it. This star just shows <laughs> up places. Yeah. It just is there. It's never moving when you see it. And you're kind of like... Okay, it's never moving, so how does it get from point A to point B? When does, who, who starts this thing hmm. up? How does it spin? Ooh, maybe it uses the laser. It pushes off. It, yeah, like it pushes off from a planet. Whoa, and... hold on now. That might actually work. <laughs> if it's using a big solid-state laser mm -hmm. in coalition with other solid-state lasers to make a giant laser beam, as we have seen happen in numerous <laughs> Star Wars films... Yep. Then it could usually Ooh. it would be able to push yeah. off of a planet that's destroying. Yeah, and it could it can destroy the planet and then use the shock wave from the planet's destruction. Just keep on to, cruising. It yeah. surfs it. Yep. Oh shoot. So what you're saying is the Death Star is actually a no good bum surfer who just mm -hmm. kinda like rides the wave, man, of destroyed planets to wherever it's going next. Yeah, dude. All right. I mean, I can see that. That's the weird thing, is that in space, there's not that much friction. If some yeah. explosion happens, it's going to push you a fair amount of the way you're, to right. where you're going next. I mean, there still has to be something else going on, but I mean, <laughs> at least that alleviates my, uh, you know, my suspicions of Star Wars being a huge farce on yeah, a scientific you can level. Suspend your disbelief uh, now. Yeah, I can get back into it. And I can also get back on topic, which yeah. is the solid state laser. Okay, so where do we want to go from here? We could go to that list of laser types, or we could go on over to laser pumping. Because I just like that phrase. That laser pumping. It sounds, it sounds like it's compensating for something. It sounds like there's too much machismo in that. I don't know. I don't know. There's also uh there's also the various weapons programs that are using lasers in them, namely uh the United States Navy testing high energy solid state mm. lasers, uh solid state lasers being developed as optional weapons for the F thirty five Lightning II, and also the introduction of the Northrop Grumman's fire strike laser weapon system. Ooh, that could and be a good one. There is a weapon. Fire strike is in all caps, <laughs> which makes the it the best exciting. way for any word to be. Exactly. It makes you think that it stands <laughs> for something, but it probably doesn't. They probably <laughs> just trademarked it with the caps lock on. Um, but before we go there, I do want to note that the words SWCNT and graphene has uh, five citations wow. five five citations after it wow that those two words <laughs> needed five citations to prove that it was really correct why <laughs> I have no idea wow but you can see you see how 
um, big of a stickler these Wikipedia editors can be at times. Apparently, they need <laughs> they need to go out of out of their way to provide infinite amount of sources for just two words. <laughs> like, wow, I think they proved their point. Jeez, yeah. man. People are terrified on Wikipedia of you know yeah, providing false, false information and stuff like that. It's a good thing we don't hold ourselves to that standard. <laughs> All right, let's go to Fire Strike. Fire Strike. Fire Strike. Which doesn't, uh, it, as I suspect, it isn't an abbreviation <laughs> for anything. It's just in all caps. <laughs> oh yes, awesome. It sounds like a '90s children's story. Well, it's a good. It's a good thing they did rename it. They also uh, call this thing the Gyps Laser. <laughs> that one's probably an abbreviation. Because that's a real uncatchy <laughs> name if that's not an abbreviation. Yeah, that one doesn't roll off the tongue as easily. But yeah, this is the first combat-ready solid-state laser weapon, purportedly. Whoa. Bundled with the power supply, also manufactured by the uh, company Northrop Grumman, the fire strike can fire continuously as long as power and cooling are maintained. <laughs> that's a pretty devastating weapon. Yeah. This is a United States-based thing, despite Northrop Grumman sounding very not United States. I remember Northrop Grumman vaguely, and I think the reason I remember them is that the last time I saw their logo, their font and their logo that surrounded their font looked like kind of an inverse of... Uh, Lockheed Martin. Like, they're basically <laughs> like, okay, well, Lockheed Martin took the air, so if we just flip their logo and make our font the <laughs> same, then we'll be affiliated with being the ground forces of <laughs> basically the same caliber stuff. And I don't know that for sure, but honestly, I just kind of feel like that's probably what's going on. <laughs> okay, so this thing can be combined with... It says seven more fire strikes because one alone has a 15 kilowatt laser and it can be combined with seven more to produce a 100 kilowatt laser. So what you're saying is we can take one 15 kilowatt laser and pair it with another seven of them in a circle and we can combine all of their beams if we angle them together into one mm -hmm. and kind of a conical sort of thing to create one really powerful laser beam which will then be able to shoot at other planets and then blow them up. Yes. Okay, so <laughs> we're building the Death Star. Yes. Okay. Nobody panic. <laughs> Everything will be fine. Just let us do this. It'll be cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have been talking a bit about stars this episode. We have. It weighs 400 pounds. It's not, that's it's not too one. bad. That's just one. That is just one, though. But So, I mean, the uh, the Death Star configuration itself would weigh more in the vicinity of 3,200 pounds. That's well, a little bit yeah. a little bit bigger. You can't carry it around, <laughs> but would you need to? Yeah. I really hope you wouldn't need to carry around a 100-kilowatt laser that can fire <laughs> continuously. That's overkill. That's what that is. Mm-hmm. Its length is 23 inches. 
and width 12 inches, height 40 inches. That's not very wait, big at all. Wait, so you're saying that this thing is like, it's a foot across. It's like my laptop across. Mm-hmm. It's twice the height. Or, well, it's more like four times the it height is. of my laptop once it's unfolded. Right. And then it's, um, its length is two times its width. So that really isn't that big. That's about as big yeah. as your guitar stand over yeah. here with like two guitars in it. Yep. And that's 400 pounds. Yeah. <laughs> it's very dense, it, it seems. What are they making it out of? Seriously. Well, let's see if it has anything. Well, maybe it would be a bad idea for them to announce what all they're making it out of in this article. I guess maybe, yeah. Especially yeah, considering people building that they, these at home. Yeah. Especially considering the unit cost is still question mark on this article. <laughs> uh, they may not entirely know what exactly the standardized uh, composition will be. <laughs> they may be tampering around with that. Well, did, did we mention what year it was introduced? No, I don't think we did yet. Well, it was 2008, so that is seven years ago almost. It's weird to think that you watch something like Goldfinger. Mm. No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. What's pointed at Mr. Bond's crotch? A laser. Mm-hmm. A weaponized laser. And n- only now... 41 years after that scene, do we finally get even the inkling that we're going to be working on a weaponized laser? Mm -hmm. Like, for real, what took you so long? What took you so long? You have a concentrated beam of high-energy light. Isn't that kind of the obvious destination? Mm. Why why wasn't that like halfway through the Cold War, we already (laughs) had laser guns going around places? Why wasn't Star Wars real, is what I'm asking. (laughs) I think we just uh, deliberately were, were were sluggish on this. Because, I mean, yeah. if, if all of our, we've established that the fire strike laser, what we're talking about right now is a solid-state laser, right? Yeah. And that's made out of artificial rubies, which we've had. Mm. I mean, rubies are pretty easy to reproduce. Right. So we've had those available for forever. None of this is stuff that we couldn't have done. <laughs> but... Uh, it, 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 they, they thought about the, the fact that they could do it. They never stopped to think if they should. Maybe they did stop to think if they should before. That's, that's exactly they right. Yeah. They, they stopped. They, <laughs> they this stopped is themselves. one instance where they stopped and thought, should we do this? Nah. And then the army came along and were like, we're doing this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's pretty much it right there. But yeah, the uh, an interesting fact here from the table... The power on time is zero to full power in less than half a second. Whoa, so this thing doesn't take any time to charge up. Nope, it's like, all right, flip the switch, and and it's on. And then you can go for an unlimited amount of time as long as your power (laughs) source doesn't die on you, which if this thing is being made for the Navy and the Navy has boats Mm. that are run on nuclear reactors, which they Mm. do, uh... (laughs) That's unlimited power. <laughs> now, um, now when it says a like 100 kilowatt laser, does yes. that mean it requires 100 kilowatts to power it, or is it like 100 kilowatt exporting, exporting. from the beam yeah. itself? Yeah, that I don't know. Because if you could figure out how much power it requires to make this thing run, 
it would be easier to understand the implications of having it continuously firing at something. But it doesn't really seem to say here. Well, it does say that it has a low power setting, which provides a nominally 100-watt alignment beam. Hmm. I don't know what example you would align it with, but... <laughs> It does seem to kind of continue in the trend of giving off a beam that is equivalent to some sort of wattage, right? Right. So if I had to infer, which I kind of do have to because there's nothing <laughs> else to go off of, I would say that when we're talking about 100 kilowatt lasers here or a 15 kilowatt modular laser, we're talking about something that's exporting that much energy. Like that's the or amount of energy in a beam. W could it be both? Could it be what? you put in the 15 kilowatt power and it produces a 15 kilowatt laser? That would be ideal. Although or I think it would that probably not, it would, would have, it to, have be, to expend some of that yeah, energy. It would have to. I mean, you would think that it, it would it would be pretty efficient because you have professional like Northrop Grumman engineers on the case here being mm -hmm. sponsored by taxpayer dollars to make this thing. They're going to make it as efficient as they can, mm -hmm. but at the same time. It's not going to be perfect. You will right. have some lost energy someplace in, in the system. Yeah. So it's going to be a little bit more than 15 kilowatts, which I feel like... But still, that's, that sounds low for... A laser? Yeah. For a laser that can hurt things <laughs> big time? Yeah. I, I mean, but I don't know how long, like, what, how long... 15 kilowatts, how long does it take to expend that much energy? How right. much of a beam can it make before it has used 15 kilowatts? How much right. of a section of a beam? Because, I mean, if you think about it, a laser beam that's really powerful can go on until the moon and yeah. it gets uninterrupted. Mm -hmm. So if you're talking about the entire length of the laser beam, 15 kilowatts, I'd say that's pretty good. Yeah. But if you're talking about just, like, it being 15 kilowatts when it comes out of the cannon and right. you're kind of not really tracking it for however much more energy it needs to expend to mm -hmm. get to wherever it's going, you might have a little bit less efficiency of a right. thing. But I can't tell. Like they don't they don't really want to tell you a whole lot about this, I'm guessing, because it's probably something they're really relying on. Hmm. I mean think about this. This thing can shoot down missiles, it has no recharge time, it has no lapse in like you, there's no reload. <laughs> you can just keep going. You flip the switch and you go and that's it. This mm -hmm. is a great thing for the military. Yeah. Also a terrifying thing for them <laughs> to have. I mean, potentially, like, if the technology gets much more advanced, this could be definitely more devastating than, like, a nuclear bomb. I would because say. Because it's more focused. It's not just like, hey, let's drop a bomb and hope that it just destroys everything. This is like, all right, we can map out exactly where we want to hit and deliver intense damage to utterly destroy whatever we focus it on. And I think it's more terrifying in that it's kind of, there's no sign of it happening. Mm. Like, it'll just be zap. It'll be there, <laughs> it'll toast you, and then it'll be gone. Yeah. And that'll be it. And you nobody... Just find charred remains of people. Yeah. Like, little dust piles. Yeah. Like, that's kind of freaky. Mm -hmm. But that may be what you're looking at in the future. Yeah. I think it's nice to know that a weapon like this around our nation would prevent missiles from being a mm -hmm. threat ever again. But it's not really comforting because there's already drones. <laughs> you mount one of those things to the... Oh, yeah. One of these things to that. 
send it flying Although, around. This is 400 pounds, so it'd have to be a heck it'd of a drone. It'd have to be a big drone, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think we have any drones that can carry <laughs> payloads quite that big. Plus, it would have to continuously supply power to the laser. So I don't know if the drone laser combo is going to happen soon. Thank goodness. But if anything, yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it would be terrifying if it was feasible. But I'm mm -hmm. happy to report, thanks to Eric's sound logic, <laughs> that it's probably not feasible. Oof! Whoa! 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 Hold on. What? Is that the time? Yeah, it looks like the time. Uh, no. I think we've gone pretty, pretty far over time. Yeah, well, we got talking about lasers. Lasers are pretty good to talk about, man. Yeah. I kind of want to figure out who's building them, but eh, we'll let the shadowy figures sleep. They can, <laughs> they can serve us well another day. Yeah. I think I think we found a good place to end on this. Fire strike. <laughs> like, we get to put that on the website in all caps and stuff, oh, too, yeah. man. Like That's going to be like, woo! I've never gotten to use caps lock here on one of these. Oh, man, that's satisfying. It's going to be nice. It's gonna be so satisfying. <laughs> yep, so there you have it from Dwingaloo Radio Observatory to Firestrike. That's so good. <laughs> you just have to say it that way because there's no Fire other way strike. to say it with it all caps. I almost want to, like, slap a TM on there, <laughs> but I'll we resist the have urge. To, <laughs> might have to add a sound effect like a... Yes. You know, like some kind of, like punctuation mark every time we say fire strike <laughs> i don't know i mean you have the you have the power we have the power to do that we can just drop we it do out. i think yeah. where's where's chris <laughs> where's our friend where's our fellow podcaster from our sister podcast into the critic chris <laughs> who can provide a whip sound for us right now we need him yeah we'll we'll figure something out we're gonna make sure this happens okay every time you hear fire strike <laughs> I can't not do it now. Yeah. It's so good. It just it needs that little punctuation. It doesn't need it. It deserves it. it. Right. It's <laughs> like an honorary like empowerment that it gets. Here you go, bud. You're just as good. You get all this. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, if you enjoyed this, please visit Facebook.com slash TWC podcast and like us and follow us. And then head over to iTunes, which none of you have done except for one person, and rate and review us. And it all helps spread the word. Um, you can also find new episodes on our website, twc.erictoribio.com. And I would like to thank Louis Armstrong for our theme song and Yubi Blake for our outro song this episode. And lastly, our totally true fact for this episode is... All Fire Strike mentions must contain a <laughs> sound after them by law. There you go. So thanks again for joining us. I was Eric. I was John. And this was the Wikipedia Chronicles. My God, there's so much spit on the <laughs> microphone. You can't do... Oh, oh God, it's everywhere again <laughs> without just spitting everywhere. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Need to go. No, that's more like a... I really think we should just record Chris. There's going to be way less spittle if we that's just get true. him to make one whip sound. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a truck commercial. <laughs> It's like they're branding the something.
Yeah, yeah. Like, it's like the sizzling sound. Yeah. And then they whip it to make it go away <laughs> so they can have yeah. another one in. The brand they, it they whip the brand yeah. into wait what the thing. <laughs> <laughs> they put the brand at the end of the whip and they let it stew into the fire for no. a bit and then they crack it and, and it hits them so hard and so hot <laughs> that it just brands them brands well, them on spot I mean they're using the fire strike <laughs> wouldn't it be great you could use the fire strike that laser for awesome. branding cows ooh there you go yeah yeah just use it to be like and then. <laughs> They have your brand on them. You don't have to worry about your cows running off, being stolen. I mean, you could use, feasibly, you could use a computer to organize the, you know, route of the laser. That's true. Likely. You could just have it, program it to go. You can just program it to. signature. Br- and yeah, date blaze and time. every single cow you have all at once. Yeah. <laughs> use all, all seven fire strikes. Yes. <laughs> just refract the light into all different cows. <laughs> just use use the fire strikes right. to refract each fire strike and create like twenty different lasers. Yes. Wait. Just bounce them all <laughs> off of each other. Wait. <laughs> I don't think. Is this how fire strike works? I think. I mean, probably. I mean, if you can combine them, you, it's safe to say you can probably divide them, right? Like right, yeah. You put all seven together, and yeah. then you you use rubies to refract, refract them, them even further. Out. Yeah, and then you just they just go everywhere. Yeah, because you, I mean, you would want to lessen the power anyway, right? Right, because if you're branding cows, you don't want to just turn them into ashes. No, right. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no, that's no, you, what ideally. one maiden full power fire strike laser would do. <laughs> It just kills them. Yes. No. No. Yeah. You do want. To, you just want to lightly sear the skin. So right. you don't want to. You don't want to like set your cows on fire. That's. Of that's course, you could always put it on a low power setting. Yeah. Yeah. You, you could, could just put it on a, like a simmer. Like. Yeah. A low. I have to wonder if there's like a settings <laughs> dial on this on this laser that has like a like a warm <laughs> and then all the way up to high extra crispy. <laughs> oh, you know what you could do? What? You could cut out your own slice of beef. Oh wow. And actually cook the steak with the laser so that you you cut out the shape and then it falls out right onto the plate fully cooked what if you could do that without killing the cow what if you could literally (laughs) use the laser to like cut and also cook and also simultaneously carterize the wound in the cow so the cow loses no blood you just carve out that bit of muscle it falls onto the plate more like a fish steak than right. a normal steak because it still has like the skin mm-hmm. on the one side. But who cares? Yeah. The point but is, <laughs> you get a steak out of a cow that's going to regrow that steak for you yeah. like seven more times before and it dies. It probably wouldn't hurt. I mean, if you're using a laser that powerful, it's probably right. a going to shock the hell out of you yeah. so that you can't feel anything. Right. And also, it's probably going to like sear off the nerve endings so that it's like. Not it's, even going to register. Yeah, it's going to be so quick. I mean, so, it might scare the cow if the cow is looking at, the, at right. the part of the body that you're shooting at. But beyond that, totally humane. So quick. <laughs> and then you get steak. I think we've figured out the new business venture. I think so. I think this is our last podcast. And we have to invest in a laser. We'll just call it Fire Strike. Why not? Why not? <laughs> it's going to be used for the same purpose. We're gonna, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> call it the Fire Strike Steak. Or Fire Steak. The fire stage made by the fire strike blazer. <laughs> Perfect. Yes. <laughs>